1991, we had moved back from, uh, from Australia to North Carolina where we grew up and uh, I, was, I was working at a, in between ministries I was working at a sash and door company there selling windows and doors. And I received a notice in the mail that I was to appear for jury duty. So I went down to the courthouse that morning and I sat with all the other potential jurors. Usually there's not that much to keep you there and they, they let you go home. But this, this particular morning, uh, I, was, I was chosen to sit in interviews for a murder trial that was to begin and on the next, in the next week. And so I sat through the interviews, and I was chosen as a juror. And I remember uh, very clearly those two weeks. Uh, they have stayed in my mind all these years. I can still see all of the things that transpired through those weeks. The man, the defendant, was on trial for two murders in Forsyth County and one murder in Surrey County. Uh, three women that he had murdered and one attempted murder of another woman. He was found guilty and sentenced to death. I remember very clearly when the jurors came back in and the, and the judge asked the panel of jurors what their verdict was and uh, the for foreman of the jury said, Guilty. The judge stood and ordered the defendant to stand. And in the most sober terms that I have ever heard, leveled the action of the court and told him he was to be put to death. And nothing, nothing can change it. He appealed, but the appellate court also upheld that ruling. That man is probably gone now. In North Carolina, the death penalty is a long and drawn-out process. It takes 10 to 15 years for it to actually take place. But I thought about that, and when I read this passage beginning at verse 39, those images of the judge standing in his black robe and with his booming voice declaring the defendant guilty and sentencing him to death, this is what Jesus says in verse 39. For judgment I came into this world. Now the last time we looked at this passage, we saw the blind man as the receptor of God's divine grace and mercy. He experienced the same effects that every single sinner experiences when they are saved by the power of God working in their life. When a sinner is given eyes to see their terrible plight before the God of the universe and his standing seeing themselves standing before his judgment bar, it is an act of divine grace when a person sees that. This man is has received the grace that is from God. They don't do, 
people like this don't deserve that grace. Grace is not something that can be earned. It is divine favor, and it is always God's determination of those who receive it. Having been excommunicated from the temple by the religious authorities, the formerly blind man now finds himself without anyone to which he can turn. His parents, his neighbors, the religious community around him have all denounced him as an outcast. But there was one that was looking for him, and his name was Jesus. He was looking for this man, and he found him and extended to him the only work in all of heaven and earth and eternity that could make him whole. What more would he need than what Jesus had to give him? He experienced the supernatural and sovereign work of God, seeking out and finding one of his lost sheep. We see this clearly unfold in chapter 10, which is one of my favorite chapters. And it all comes together. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are a, are a flowing picture of God's sovereign grace to sinners and of His judgment to the unbelieving. Now, the lost sheep that the Lord seeks for and finds, they don't know that this is, they don't know that this is all happening. They have no idea what's going on behind the scenes as God is working to bring His lost ones to Christ. He doesn't realize that God is on His trail with the eternal fulfillment of God's sovereign choice. But that is exactly what is happening. So Jesus searched for the man and found him. And as when he was physically blind, spiritually he could not see. He was blind at heart. And he needed a remedy for the blindness of his soul. He had no ability to enact any sight to his darkened soul. So God had to take the initiative as he always does. To seek for Him. No one seeks God. You'll hear people say, Oh, I'm, I'm just I'm seeking after God. Well, if they're really seeking after God, it's God that's doing the work of them seeking, not themselves. This is the divine mandate of, God, of the God of heaven. Not one sinner whom God has determined to save will be left behind or unfound. Not one. Doesn't matter where they live, doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter what their status in life is, God will find them and save them. Next, the man was given divine understanding as to who the one to believe in actually was. And it was Jesus, the one whom God had sent. And the man had to have spiritual enlightenment. He had to have spiritual understanding by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, before he could truly believe. 
he was ready to believe. We can see the Spirit at work in his life. He was ready to believe, but he does not know where to turn. Sir, I don't know who it is you're talking about. He needed to know that the Son of Man had come to save sinners. To seek and save that which was lost. Then Jesus opens his understanding to to recognize Christ as the one to believe in. And through the powerful working of God in his heart, he declares, Lord, I believe. I can trust in you. I commit myself to you as your disciple, to follow you, to obey you for the rest of my life. This is what he's actually saying when he utters those words, Lord, I believe. I am your disciple. You are my Lord. Our lives do not belong to us. They belong to Christ who sought us out and found us and opened our blind eyes to see Him as the Lord to trust so that we might have the salvation that He has made for us. We are His possession, not our own. Finally, in verse 38, He seals the work of God in His heart by worshiping Jesus. This is what true salvation does. It worships Christ. The true believer does not have to be prodded to come and worship. He does it because God has worked in his heart. Salvation results in true worship of God. One of the most observed acts of heaven in the book of Revelation is the fact that God is constantly worshipped. We see it. As we studied Revelation over this past year, we see it in chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 19. God is constantly being worshipped by those who are around His throne. The angels flying above, worshipping. This is what life is about for the Christian. It's about worship. It's not just about coming to church and filling a seat. Anybody can do that. It's about a heart condition that understands that we were sinners whom Christ saved and made us His own. Why would we not want to worship Him? Having just been expelled from the temple, this man and Jesus, no doubt with The other disciples are there in the presence of the Jews who are watching and listening to this interchange with Jesus. Now, try to picture it in your mind. The Jews are there with their smug and self-righteous display of pride and hardness of heart. The man is there with a heart that has been prepared for a habitation of God. Jesus is there with the eternal gospel, bringing one of his lost sheep into his fold. The Father is there, 
executing his divine plan that was decreed from the foundation of the world. And the Holy Spirit is there, bringing all of it to pass as the Father had planned. This is all taking place in that moment when Jesus finds the man and questions him about his soul. Now, after all of this, we would expect that the chat, this chapter would end at verse 38. After all, this is what we've been waiting for. The man was selected, mud placed in his eyes, washed in the pool, went back home, came back to the temple. He was questioned, and his parents were questioned, and he was questioned again, and then he was expelled, and he finds... That Jesus is looking for him and he's saved gloriously. That is a perfect place to end this story. But that is not where it ends. This story ends with stinging words of judgment and condemnation. This is a very negative theme in light of what has happened to the blind man. But these words were meant not only for the blind man's sake, but also for the Pharisees' sake, and consequently, and ultimately, for us. These words are a kind of summary of what had happened to the man, and a warning to the Pharisees who had hardened their hearts towards the words of Christ. Now, there are some difficulties here, which we're going to look at, in what Jesus actually says here. First, there is the difficulty of what appears to be a contradiction with Genesis, or with, uh, excuse me, with John chapter 3, verse 17, which says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now, the word condemned in John 3.17 and the word judgment in verse 39 are the same Greek word. So, it appears on the surface that there's a contradiction. One place says Jesus came into the world not to judge or condemn the world. The other place says he, he came for judgment. We're going to look at it. Second... There is the difficulty of those who are spiritually blind and receive just compensation of their guilt and those who see and the justification of acquittal of guilt. And the wording in the wording is is difficult. So we need to Find out what it actually is saying. Now let's begin with the phrase in verse 39, I came into this world. This phrase is used in John's gospel to speak of the purpose for which Jesus came. The gospels are full of these kinds of statements. For example, in Mark chapter 2 verse 17, he says this, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So there's an instance where he said he came to call sinners and not righteous people. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So, here's a different purpose for which he came. To fulfill the law and the prophets. Luke chapter 12 verse 49 says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. So, all of these passages say that Jesus came for a little bit of a different purpose. So it's multifaceted. His coming into the world. This particular text, in verse 39, is a good news, bad news announcement. It tells us that he came to fulfill two purposes. That come from God and that stem from the very beginning, from before creation. The first part is the best news. It's the good news, anyone, best news anyone can hear. That those who do not see may see. Is there anything better than that? Can you imagine being stone blind, never having seen anything, and all of a sudden... You can see everything clearly. I can't even imagine what that would be like. I've never had to endure uh, any kind of blindness, even temporarily. The blind will be made to see. Jesus only gave sight to certain, a certain number of people while he was on earth. But he gives sight to all of those who come to him in faith believing. Think of it. His giving of sight to people on earth while he was living here was only a symbol of what he does spiritually for those who come to him in faith believing. He gives all of them sight. You and I, before we came to Christ, we were as blind as bats. Although bats are not totally blind. But that's good news. He gives sight to the blind. But then comes the bad news, which follows right behind the good news and is connected to his statement by the word and, and those who see may become blind. So which is it? Well, it's both. It's both. This statement in verse 39 divides all of humanity into two groups. Those who see and those who do not see. These two groups are sharply contrasted. The structure of verse 39 is very important. He said, for judgment I came into this world. That, you see the word that? It's the Greek word hina. And when it's used the way it's used in verse 39, and I've told this so many times, most of you that have been here a long time will remember this, that that the word hina in 
verse 39, is connected to a verb that makes this, makes this explain the purpose for which the action happens. In order that, in order that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. So there's a double, there's a double judgment that's taking place. He came for judgment. Two types of judgment listed here. To the one, it's the judgment of spiritual blindness. And to the other, it's the judgment of mercy and spiritual sight. You say, how can spiritual sight be a judgment? It is the judgment of God. It's like we would say, I make, I make this judgment that, this, that I'm going to do this or bring this to pass. This is the kind of judgment we're talking about. Here, Jesus is speaking of the blindness of the Pharisees. They will receive judgment because they think they see when they really don't. The world is filled with millions of people who think they see but they really don't. They will receive judgment. They reject Jesus' peace. They reject His grace. They reject His extended mercy. And all the, time, all the while they're rejecting, they think they see clearly when they don't. And therefore, they will be judged. Their judgment is a blindness that comes from God and from themselves. To reject His peace and grace and mercy is to receive His judgment. So you see, there's no, con- there's no real contradiction here from chapter 3. Turn to chapter 3. Let's read the text. Beginning at verse 18. <clears throat> Whoever believes in him is not condemned. See that? Do you believe in the Son of Man? You're not condemned. But whoever does not believe, notice the words, is condemned already. See, there's judgment placed upon those who do not believe in Christ. And that judgment is taking place right now. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Listen to it. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. You see the the two contrasts here? It's the same as in verse 39. Some who see and come to the light, and others who think they see, but reject the true light and remain in darkness and in judgment. They're condemned already. Drop down to verse 36. 
whoever believes in the Son has eternal life presently. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Now that's an important statement. What does it say? It says that they're blind. They will never see life. They think they have it together, but they don't. And so judgment is theirs. The wrath of God remains on them. So the condemnation that he speaks of is self-inflicted. They subject themselves to his judgment by refusing to believe. Spiritual sight comes only to those who acknowledge that they cannot see. These are those who confess their blindness and receive sight from above. Those who think they see on their own, they have their own view, they think they see, but they really don't, are condemned, they delude themselves, and they remain blind and end up condemned forever. They're condemned already, as we've just seen, but they remain that way because they will not see. In their own wisdom, they believe that it'll all, it's all going to work out in the end. You ever had anybody say that to you? Oh, I believe it's just all going to work out in the end, you know. Um, I, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't do anything about it. I'll just, I'll just wait till that, till I'm there. Huh. They are seriously mistaken. This was the case when Jesus entered the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. Turn with me to Luke 4. The synagogue in Nazareth where he grew up. Everybody knew him. His words were gracious words. Jesus went to the synagogue and he took the scroll from the attendant, the scroll of Isaiah, and he began to read in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. You see those words, poor, captive, blind, oppressed? Those are descriptive words of those who do think they see, but really don't see. They're poor. They have, no, they have no riches that come from heaven. They're captive to their sin. They're blind in their heart. And they're oppressed by not only their sin, but by Satan and his hordes. So what was the result of that message that day? When Jesus actually portrayed himself as the one whom the passage was speaking of. He said, today, this passage is fulfilled in your ears. I am the one that Isaiah was talking about. So what was the, what was the outcome? Look down at verse 28, 29. 
when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Why? Why would they be so angry at him reading the scroll of Isaiah? I'll tell you why. Because he was saying to them, you're the ones that are poor. You're the ones that are captive to your sin. You're the ones that are blind. And you're the ones that are oppressed. He was telling them that they were these These things were descriptive of them. They thought they could see, but the judgment was upon them. They were blind to the things of God. They were blind to the offer of eternal salvation. Verse 29, they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. They wanted to kill him. But he passed supernaturally through them. And they couldn't find him. You see, spiritual blindness always receives judgment. Those who think they have it all together on their own, who think that they can be good enough or think that God couldn't possibly condemn anyone. Receive the irreversible judgment of permanent blindness. This is what the text is speaking of. It's not talking about a temporary thing. It's talking about a permanent blindness that does not see Christ as the one who came from God to die for sinners. The message of Isaiah 6 is repeated, is repeated multiple times in the New Testament. It's repeated in John chapter 12. It's repeated in Matthew chapter 13. In Acts chapter 28. And Paul uses another passage in Isaiah chapter uh, 29 verse 10 in Romans chapter 11. Listen to what he says. <clears throat> Romans, uh, Romans chapter 11, yes, verses, verses 8 to 10. What then? Israel failed to, failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear down to this very day. By the way. The Jews still have eyes that will not see and ears that will not hear. Right to this very day. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Those who will not see because they think they see are under the judgment of God. This is one of the reasons Jesus said He came. Now, the Pharisees have reached this same point of hardness of heart that Pharaoh did in Exodus 4, Exodus 10, and Exodus 14. First, Pharaoh hardened his heart, his own heart, against God. 
And then, having hardened his own heart, God hardened his heart even further. This is what's happening with the Pharisees. This this is what happens with religious people who think they see, but they really don't see. They keep hardening their heart and hardening their own heart against the truth of the gospel of Christ. And God eventually steps in and hardens their heart even further. They're blind and there's no reversal. The final judgment was for Pharaoh that he drowned in the depths of the sea with his army. So spiritual blindness always receives judgment. There's, there's another thing here that spiritual blindness does. It always refuses to admit its condition. Now people that are physically blind will generally tell you that they know they're physically blind. I'm blind. I can't see. I've known quite a few blind people over the years. And all of them admit that they are physically blind. But when it comes to spiritual blindness, they will not admit that they're blind. They think they see. They think they've got it all together. These Pharisees were listening and trying to reconcile what Jesus is saying in their own minds. And so they ask in verse 40, are we also blind? You think we're blind too? They're thinking, how could we possibly be blind? We are the spiritual leaders in Israel. And you think we're blind? We're not numbered with the rabble. We're we're not numbered with the common people who know nothing about the law. We're the teachers. We know what we're talking about. Remember their chiding of the blind man back in verse 34? You were born in utter sin and you would try to teach us? And they threw him out. But the reality was that they were spiritually blind, leading people in their blind attempt to reach heaven by themselves. It's no different than it is today. You can find any number of places where people are standing behind pulpits like I am this morning and teaching nothing that leads people to the light. Some do good, some good work, some religious act to attain the favor of God. Just do good, believe in yourself, live your best life now. And they are the blind leading the blind, and they both fall into the pit, Jesus said. They were sure they were all right, these Jews. In their pride, they asked the question in verse 40, which expects a negative response. Here's what they wanted to hear. They are expecting Jesus to say, no, I don't think you're blind. I think you may be a little confused, but you're not blind. That's what they wanted to hear. That's what they expected to hear. 
But they refused to admit that they were blind. And they confirmed by refusing to admit it that they were. Spiritual blindness receives, always receives judgment. Spiritual blindness refuses to admit its condition. And spiritual blindness also refuses spiritual sight. The lost believe that they are happy and fulfilled in their sinful blindness. They do not see their sin as a problem. It's just their focus. They're just living life. They're just going through life. Doing whatever makes them feel good. They don't see it as a problem. And so they reject any other point of view. You know, this has become a real problem, not only in spiritual things, but in all other matters today. That people are not willing to look at another viewpoint. They're not willing to have a conversation and, and let one viewpoint outweigh another viewpoint. It's their viewpoint or it's none. Well, God says the same thing. It's my viewpoint that matters, God says. You can think what you want, but my word will come to pass. Jesus said, I came for judgment. That's going to come to pass. Now this statement in verse, let's see here. Oh, let me turn back to nine. This statement in verse 40 uh, <clears throat> Uh, Verse 41, excuse me. If you were blind, Jesus said, you would have no guilt. That's kind of a confusing statement, isn't it? He is not saying that their blindness relieves them of their guilt before God. That is not what he's saying. He's not teaching that. Rather, he is saying that if they would admit that they were blind in their sinful condition and come to the light of Christ, they would have no sin because he would forgive it. Just like he forgave the sin of the man born blind who finally had spiritual sight to see Christ and Christ forgave him. You would have no sin if you could see because I would forgive you of your sin. That's good news, folks. Because he gave us he gave us eyes to see who he is and us to see ourselves who we were, and he saved us from our sin. And therefore, our sin is is gone. Judicially, our sin is gone. God will never say, I find you guilty. We have been acquitted by Christ before God's throne in heaven. Before his judgment bar. We are not guilty. Oh, we still sin in our flesh. But that does not mean that we are condemned eternally. Because Christ has saved us from eternal death. Romans 7 teaches that. This is a, a message, this... You would have no sin 
is a message that is taught throughout the Scriptures. Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. You want to have assurance that your sins are forgiven? Confess them to the Lord and then walk away believing that He said He would forgive you. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Claim those promises when you sin in your flesh. Claim them. Confess before God. Receive His forgiveness and then walk away and, and try not to sin anymore. Now that's easier said than done, isn't it? Because we live in a body of flesh. The new person created in Christ Jesus cannot sin. But this body of flesh does. And that's the battle. It's our, it's our new person fighting the old flesh. Because this flesh is not taken away when you're born again. It's still there. John Calvin comments, He is blind who, aware of his own blindness, seeks a remedy to cure his disease. In this way, the meaning would be, If you would acknowledge your disease, it would not be altogether incurable. But now, because you think that you are in perfect health, you continue in a desperate state. When he says that they who are blind have no sin, he does not excuse ignorance as if it were harmless and were placed beyond the reach of condemnation. He only means that the disease may be easily cured when it is truly felt. This man was truly feeling his Soul's guilt. Because when a blind man is desirous to obtain deliverance, God is ready to assist him. But they who, insensible to their disease, despite the grace of God, are incurable. I'll tell you, this makes me so thankful. And, and humbles me to the depths that I could possibly reach to think that someone as sinful as I was, and, they, and got, that God would open my blind eyes to see. We have no pride in what we do or what we did. The only pride we can have that is any, worth anything is to have pride in the cross of Christ. To boast in the cross of Christ. These Pharisees and those like them are like the fools spoken of in Proverbs. Proverbs twenty six twelve. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. 
Isaiah 5, 21, Woe to these who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Finally, the last thing in verse 41 is the spiritual blindness ends in eternal disaster. It ends in eternal disaster. Since the Jews thought that they knew best and were not willing to entertain Jesus' words, their sin would remain. There is a sense of finality in his words here. In verse 41, since you say we see, your your guilt remains. These words carry with them the eternal confirmation of death and separation from God in punishment and torment. They were unable to escape their guilt before God. Therefore, because they rejected God's Son, their guilt remains upon them. Notice the word remains. It is a present active indicative. It's present tense. It remains currently. It remains constantly. And it's an indicative which says it's a simple statement of fact. Jesus is stating a fact. Their sin will remain. Their guilt will remain. Usually the word remain is is used to reflect some kind of positive results. But here, as in John 3.36, it is negative. This is a frightening And worrisome prediction that he's giving to these men. It's like what Jesus said to them in John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Have you ever been that bold with anyone? Have you ever ever told anyone, if you persist in your sin, you will die and end up in hell? There are countries in the world right now that have made laws against those kinds of statements. If you were to say that in the Netherlands, you could be taken to court and locked up. If you say it in Canada. But they are true statements. So what is the answer to all of this? Here's the answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Sir, I don't know who He is. It is He who is you are looking at right now. And He who is speaking to you right now. Lord, I believe. Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Commit your life to Him. Forsake your sinful life to follow Jesus. Walk in His Word. Live according to His commands. That's what it means to believe. Now you know that. I've preached this to you for the last 23 years. But it's possible that someone that's even here today may not have that kind of relationship with the Lord Jesus. If that's true of you, don't don't walk out of here 
like the Pharisees, thinking that you can handle this yourself. Believe in Jesus. Have faith in what He did on the cross. And follow Him. Reject your sin. And follow Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for the Word, for what it teaches us. And Lord, as we As we prepare to go into chapter 10, we see this played out and illustrated so clearly by our Lord. For chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 are are one long illustration of what the sovereign work of God in salvation does. How it opens blind eyes to see Christ as the Savior as the Lord, who is calling His sheep to Himself among people from every tribe, every tongue, every language. We thank You for Your salvation that You've given to us and pray that we would walk in Your words and live by Your commands. Confess when we fail. Confess when we sin. So that our lives might be a testimony of your grace and mercy. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.